0: Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, my guest today has absolutely no connection to Zimbabwe or indeed Africa. She does, however, have a deep connection to me, despite us never having met. In 2011, New Zealand author DJ Connell wrote a book called Julian Corkle is a Filthy Liar, a book that had me rolling in the aisle laughing and crying in equal measures. You're probably wondering what the connection is. Well, the story charts the life of a gay teenager growing up in a rural community in Tasmania in the 1960s and 70s. Does that sound familiar? Anyway, DJ Connell is talking to me today from her home in Sydney. So DJ, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood.
1: And thank you for having me, Pete. Lovely to be here. Lovely to talk to you, it's wonderful. And I'm very, um, I always appreciate people who who get my writing. Of course, I appreciate most people anyway, but I'm very appreciative. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, honestly, the book was a triumph and has been described on your Amazon blurb as the ultimate feel-good novel, a book that will have the reader laughing out loud on on the back of a bus as it follows Julian's bumpy journey through adolescence, fibbing his way through school and a series of dead-end jobs to find his ultimate calling as creator of the hog it's as if crocodile dundee has crashed muriel's wedding and run off into the desert with priscilla what a great line
1: that yes, was very good the um actually party match magazine you know the big the big photo magazine paris match party match absolutely they it, yes they called it the funniest novel of the year Oh, and, uh, the french liked it so well, yeah.
0: well, I have to say it had me laughing the whole time, laughing out loud as well, which takes a lot in writing. Um, you know, and I must confess for a long time, I assumed you were a man and was quite surprised that a woman would write a story about a gay boy growing up in Tassie. What's the connection and and what inspired you to write the book?
1: Well, um, obviously I am part of the LGBTQ Community, but I'm I'm not a very I don't behave in any way that um, I never follow rules. So I'm I'm a freedom fanatic. But you know I've had lovers on both sides of both. Well, actually, in t- with two genders I should say. Anyway, um, so I'm part. It's part of my tribe, part of my community. And look, most of my friends. Most of my male friends are gay, not all. I have great, I've got three straight brothers as well. Um, but I, I, I have, and I, and I had friends from Tasmania as well. So I had a thing about, I wanted to set, I wanted to set a funny story about a kind of a, 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 an odd character who thinks he's a player, even though he's obviously not. Um, someone who's deluded a bit, but also kind of lovable because he never gives up and he makes so many mistakes and stumbles through. But at the same time, we needed to have, I wanted him to, because the 70s, look, my gay friends had terrible times, gay male friends had terrible times in the 70s and 80s. It was a terrible time, really. And then of course, with um, HIV, AIDS, it made life very difficult in the 80s, but this is before that. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to sit in a community where where it was probably a bit more obvious, because, you know, Tasmania, before they put high-speed ferries to to the island, was a very, it's quite isolated, really, because you had to take a slow ferry or a, or a plane to get there. So it meant that there was that small island mentality. And also, it was a criminal offence for two gay men to have sex, consenting sex until quite recently. I can't remember. I mean, I think it was, might have even been 2000. It was around the time of my book. Too. Yeah, anyway.
0: Which is incredible, because Adelaide, just across the, the the water, had a gay mayor or a gay governor f- uh, many, many years ago.
1: And and Adelaide is known as one of those churchy, churchy towns or churchy cities. I know it was an odd thing. It was um, it's probably to do with it with Tasmania being slightly isolated and having probably conservative governments. So I'm not quite sure why. But it was a very strange thing. In fact, around the time the book came out um there was a story about two gay men setting up setting up a um, they'd been they'd been buying this town which was kind of cheap but the shop fronts and they were set, they were changing it changing it into they were going to make it sort of a tourist destination a coastal town i can't remember the name of the town it might have even been called penguin anyway they kind of got ran out run out of town this was this was only what 10 15 years ago or so they got run out of town they had like Um, a kangaroo got nailed to their front door and things like that was terrible so (laughs) it was it's a different place now I hear but it was you know I visited Tasmania twice Um, anyway
0: well you know I mean as I said the book's hilariously funny and as you say it also covers some very serious coming-of-age issues and the parallels with my own life growing up theatrical on a farm in the 60s and 70s, Rhodesia, is absolutely spot on. Um, In fact, the book inspired me to write my own story. So I was never quite as funny as you and I often wish I could have stolen some of your lines. (laughs) Um, Did you come from a particularly funny family? Uh,
1: Yes, I came from, my mother is a very, very funny woman. She's incredibly, she's hard as nails really, but incredibly funny and everybody loves her, even though she's incredibly rude. One of those people, you know, very small, but loud. Um, and all, I grew up in a, we were competitive about being funny. And yes, humour was the thing because it was a, a very close family there were five of us in seven, seven five of us in seven years, siblings, siblings wise and, sibling wise. And um, so, yes, I grew up in a very funny family. But then, you know, I left New Zealand young. I haven't lived in New Zealand for 30... um, I left in 19... I don't know I can't even think. I've been away for about 34 years. Over Mm. half my life, I've lived outside of New Zealand. So I've also developed a different kind of humour. I've got the family humour, which is quite... It can be very sarcasm, really. And then I've got... Other, another layer, layers upon layers, because I've lived in lots of different countries.
0: Yeah, so, how would you describe your writing genre? Um, uh, well, it's not comedy, and it's uh, it's not specifically coming of age, because you've written a lot of other books, which we will get to in a minute.
1: Yes, um, I've, I, yeah, um, actually, I've, I'd say I write about, I don't know, it's hard to put me in, in a genre, I suppose it's um family related drama, personal stories um it's always about it's always about a misfit someone who's who doesn't quite fit and the struggles they have as an outsider. but I think I use humor as the the vehicle to drive the story forward and keep you reading while perhaps not such funny stuff happens.
0: yeah, I suppose a bit like tales of the city, but with a lot more humor. Um, I think it's important to inform my listeners that Julian Corkle is a is a filthy liar. It's just one notch in an extremely prolific career in writing. In fact, you've traveled the world as a journalist and spent several years in the UK, France, and Japan. In fact, your writing career began in Japan, didn't it? What's your What's your background in writing?
1: Well, you know, I came from quite a, I suppose, a working class family, although my dad had a had a bite, had a business in the end, but we, um, so I had to get out of New Zealand to find something different, I'd I'd stumbled through a degree, I came, and then I traveled with a backpack through Southeast Asia, and I thought I ended up, I could have gone to Hong Kong, Taiwan, or, there you know, know, I was young, looking for a place to work, and so I ended up in Japan, and there I told, I exaggerated a bit, and got a job on a newspaper, and that's how I started, I started very low, I started as a uh proofreader um my spelling was terrible actually so it's quite interesting and (laughs) (laughs) but then you know worked i worked extremely hard like i i couldn't type but i had to type and i'd never type because we we always used to handwrite our essays at university so i went to the salvation army bought a typewriter and a book and taught myself to type in a few days and then um and then started off as a proofreader that's how i
0: this was in japan
1: japan and i worked for a newspaper and mm,
0: Oh, I, I mean, who did, who, what, what was the newspaper?
1: It's now folded or it's online. It was called the Asahi Evening News. Okay. Ibn, Ibn Asahi. It was, um, it was an evening paper. So I used to work very early mornings and I ended up being a, a page editor and, you know, doing re- reporting and things. But that, from there I went to advertising and also I worked as a writer for an international nonprofit for many years. Um, so, and then, and then I started I, I worked freelance for many years and then I started writing books, but you know, I have to say only, I've only published two books, but I've got a, now I've just got a new deal, so I'll, I'll be publishing, mm. I'm changing publishers from HarperCollins to Simon & Schuster. That, and yes, I'm, absolutely, glad.
0: congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, you said in an interview that giving up journalism to write novels was like sprouting wings. Yeah. Why did you actually decide to take that leap and give up journalism because journalism is kind of like the bread and butter and going into writing novels is a, a completely different world but you know
1: I'd sort of already made a leap from journalism to copywriting anyway so I went into a more commercial stu- type of writing anyway and then so I suppose what it is is and and I suppose my bread and butter, by that stage was advertising with a little bit, I, I did bits and pieces of features and things, but mostly it was advertising, that's how I was, and you are really boxed into what your client, client thinks is best, even though they don't always know what's best, and so you'd write something beautiful and it would be destroyed all the time, time and time again, time and time again, and and actually it was a very good, it was a very good training, because as a novelist, as you know, or a writer, as you know, you have to kill you have to. You can't be too precious with your work. So you have to kill it's your darling. Kill your. That's it. That's what they call it. Yes, kill your darling. And yeah. so, but it's crushing. It's crushing because you can never really take pride in what you do because someone's going to wreck it. And also, who's a, who's going to appreciate it? How many how many air conditioners? How many how many um, uh, computers? Cars, motorbikes. Do you want to sell? do you want to go to, do you want to die and say, I was great, I sold a lot of motorcycles for um, Yamaha or cars for Honda or, you know, this sort of thing. Um, So yes, um, to create is a wonderful thing. Mm.
0: Were you you doing copywriting in Japan? Because they have a particularly wicked sense of humor that is different to anywhere else in the world.
1: Yeah, but my sense of humor had no place in selling there. any Japanese, almost, you can almost name any Japanese company, I, I would have written something for them, a brochure or um, I've, I've written all sorts of things, ad- advertorials, you name it, I've done, the, um, anyway, for every, probably nearly every Japanese company you know of that's well known, I would have done it. Yes, no, they do have a sense of humour, but you're not allowed to use that, it's very strict and they're, mm. very, prude, they're very prudish with anything that's business-wise, they don't take risks. so. I remember writing things like with a car's car's body, calling it muscular. No, you can't use that word. Or sensual, you can't use that word. You know, you have to use, oh, God knows. It might have changed now because I've left there a long time ago, but it was probably
0: not actually. (laughs) Maybe worse. Now, now, your other novel, Sherry Cracker Gets Normal, is another very funny book, but again, a story about someone who just isn't quite normal. Yeah. Yet, despite that, there's always once again something serious going on in your books. Is this fundamental to your writing or who you are as a human being?
1: Um, I think it is me. I think I am somebody who does live on the fringes anyway. I, I'm I certainly don't do things in a normal way um and i am i often say i spend half over half my time in a relationship trying to get out of it i have a problem with this of being tied down in any way anyway so my characters i have a real empathy for people who are not it's not because of the way i am because i'm quite i'm strong enough to you know deal with my own life but I'm always drawn to people on the fringes. I'm always drawn to people who suffer because they're different. I can almost, you know, if there's, and and I've had relationships with, through, let's say two partners with, you know, significant mental mental health issues. Uh, Let's say three, actually. Let's just be (laughs) honest. (laughs) Okay. Let's not crunch numbers, though. Let's not say what the proportion is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope they're not listening either.
1: Well, it's the truth. So, well, you know, but I'm not naming names. Am I satisfied? No. I often think probably one of the reasons I feel more comfortable with my tribe is we've all had to fight to be who we are. So we, yeah. we're battle-scarred, and we, we know compromise. We know we have we have we have anything that we are today we, we're just so much more usually more tolerant and more open-minded i think of, yeah. because of because what we've had to
0: endure or is it safe to say that nowadays you're more into movie making um in fact wasn't julian corkle picked up by sarah ratcliffe yes. uh, who is the producer of the brilliant my beautiful laundrette and i can see the parallels between the two, uh, the two movies was the movie ever made?
1: The movie, um, well, there's no, there's still well, as you know, the movie business grinds on. It takes years and years and years to, for something to develop, and no, they're still one hundred percent behind it. They're still working on it. It's I have complete faith in them actually that something will happen. But then we've got COVID at the moment, so you mm. can't make movies. Um, it's um, Sarah actually Sarah and Marion McGowan bought it, so it's a it's an Australian British co-production, which is quite, which is always good because it means that funding sources from both countries is is possible, are possible, you know, and so you know that it's still in the works and um, hopefully the new book might find, um, hope because I mean I write in a reasonably visual way so it's um I think my writing lends itself to, Yeah.
0: To,
1: I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound like, you know, I, like I, fantastically, I, but it does because it's just the way I write.
0: You know. Yeah. Do, I, I mean, are you writing many TV scripts or film scripts? No, um, no. T- because you wrote something called kid gloves, which yes. won a lot of awards around the world. That's right.
1: That's right. But I wrote, I write the stories that become the scripts. So I wrote a short story and this team of young filmmakers picked it up and turned it into a film which won so many awards. But that was, in a way, it's their work. So, I mean, yes, it was my story, but they did a beautiful job and that's probably why it won the awards. Um, mm. So I, I feel a bit... I feel a bit, I don't know how much I can claim (laughs) that it's a victory, you know, that it's my success, but it was lovely that it was one of my short stories and um, yeah, but it was, it's a a great little film. It's um, a nine, ten minute film. Very good. And again, it's about, it's got, it's got um, a gay character, someone, you know, in there. I'm not saying that I always write about gay people, but generally that's, there's something of that in my writing because, Yeah,
0: Um, uh, (laughs) uh, going back to Julian Corkle, um, was it difficult to find a publisher? That was your first book, and it's always very hard uh, to find a publisher for your first book.
1: Well, actually, yes yes and no. The thing is, I was living in France, I was living in Paris, because I lived there for nine years when I wrote it, and then I didn't know what I was doing, so I sent it out, I sent it out to quite a few agents, and, um, I, you know, you know, I got responses from six agents. It was very strange. And wow. so I chose, and then some of them said it needs work. Some of them said, I can't remember, another one was still reading. And I, the first one who said, yes, I love it. I'll take it. And I'll, we'll just look at ways to, you know, um, uh, improve it. Well, I took it. I took him and then for about five years, I languished with him. He was he was new to the game. I didn't know what I was doing. He was a nice man, but it didn't go anywhere. So then I, I separated from him and then but I went back. This is strange, isn't it? This is how things happen. Then I went back to one of the agencies that had originally liked it um, and I contacted them again and they were interested again, And um, but they said it needed a bit more work. But then the person, Then and it's a long story, but the person who liked it, then left the agency and then blah, blah, blah. And anyway, I linked up, um, that, that person became a publisher and then the public, and anyway, some, it was connections through connections, but the book somehow had touched someone who, led, who then led me on to finding another public, finding a publisher and then I had to find, so I found a publisher before the agent.
0: Fantastic. <laughs> uh, uh, DJ, how often do you write? Uh, there's a delicious piece, and I, I say delicious, Piece that you wrote on writing in your website about your creativity in the early mornings. And if I may, I'll just read it. Perfect. In the early mornings, I'm audacious and open to possibility. I can happily give a character wings, steal the family silver, or put a house to flames, huge flames that lick the bubbling paint off a window frame and explode the wall clock in the kitchen with an almighty bang. Now, it's fantastic. And, you know, it really uh, gives you inspiration for anyone who is starting out at uh, writing in this world.
1: Uh, That's very kind of you. Um, Very, very kind to say. Um, I think it's very true. I think mornings, although there are people who love writing in the evening. So, but there's something for me precious about the morning first thing and the mind, you go from sleeping and the mind is, the imagination has been running all night. So it's been free. It's like a dog off its leash. It's been running around, running around. And then you come, you perhaps make a cup of tea, have a shower, have a cup of tea and come to your computer with your mind still unleashed to some extent. And then it's, it flows much better. You're not, once your day starts and you start boxing it in with what has to be what this I've got to buy bread I've got to, she wants me to do this this is that once your mind starts becoming corralled I suppose into that uh you lose you lose that sense of big possibility you, you lose your connection I call it the imagination machine you lose your connection to that the big stuff and it and so I think if you can do that if and something also happens, I think, late at night for people. There's a similar, a similar thing. As you're going towards sleep, the mind also starts to take flight. So um, mm-hmm. some people are late-night writers, and it seems to work for them. Um, but early morning, I think if I can do two hours early morning, it's worth four hours during the day. It's an interesting, interesting thing.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I, do you have this experience, Peter?
0: Um, I used to write in the mornings, yeah, and and get it behind you as well. Um, you know, if it got too late in the day, I was never going to go back to it. Um, now, I think we need a drum roll. Okay. You're currently writing, as you say, a new novel, and you've just sold the worldwide rights to Simon & Schuster, Schuster. So, tell us about the book. Are you allowed to tell us about the book? I
1: can, um, I can give you because a... Because in
0: a recent tweet, you say it's by far the best thing you've ever written.
1: I, I, think, I think absolutely it is. And um, I've already written it. So they've, they've got the finished uh, manuscript. They'll, they'll probably want changes. They certainly want to change the title. The original title was Paint the Duck and they want something, they want something different, that's fine. I'm, as I said, I had good training in Japan. I'm fine. There's always a new way to write something, so let's change the title. That's fine, but it has to be something good. And um, it's about uh, a teenage girl in in London, because I was living. I lived in London for all up, but I lived there for I can't remember eleven years or something, and I only left there two and a half years ago. So um, and she and she's this big character, big spirit, and they moved from Brixton to Camden. We're on a housing estate, the little brother gets sick, things start going wrong. Um, and so you, so we watch someone who's vibrant, big spirited, great imagination, funny. The humor is in what she says and what she does, but not the situation. The situation becomes very, very precarious, very difficult. and the people who should be looking out for her and protecting her are not. So she's absolutely it's that thing where, where young people, when they get teenagers, when they get into trouble, and no, and they've lost their credibility. No one's going to listen to her when she's trying to tell them something. And um, so, yes, she gets. T- <laughs> but she's beautiful. She's a wonderful big. She's like a Julian character, another big character, big larger than life character, but who suffers terribly. And um, but she's always funny because she's always you know making and, up.
0: And but- when can we expect it on the on the shelves?
1: Um, well, Simon, Sch- with, with big publishers, what they do is they 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 plan ahead for the year ahead usually. So, this book will come out early 2022. But I've got another book okay. as well that's basically finished, but I want more work on it. So then I'll have to sell that too. So that's what I can work on at the moment. Though I have very little time to work. You might know that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, now, you once said that it was important to bring a little sunshine into people's lives, so before we actually go, do you have a message to all the thousands of young people out there trying to find their identity in a world quite literally bombarded with information? Am I putting you on the spot by asking you? No, absolutely
1: not, absolutely not. I love to encourage people, you know, I you know, Usually every year I go and teach in Greece in this fantastic island called Skiros. I love it. It's like a, it's a fantastic place. So I, I, part of that is I I teach creative writing. No, so I love, I love encouraging people. Okay, young people. I would like to put that message to young and old actually because, because, but of course, young people in particular are suffering because their future doesn't, looks a bit bleak at the moment. Um, I think if you want to write, you want to create something, You can't, don't cheat, don't cheat. Actually give it your all and and your voice has to be authentic and original. And it may seem hard, but it's the best way to write because when you write in your real voice, when you write from the heart, when you do the work, you don't just dash something off and think that's good enough, I can't look at it. You go back and you weigh up your words and you play with them, you let it sit, you come back to it. If, as they say, every word should earn its place on the page. I agree with that it's absolutely true. you might not get that the first time round or the second. The gold is in the editing. so write your dash off your story have a create a structure, dash off your story or dash off your book or whatever you're going to do, and then go back and work it and work it and do it with a song in your heart. Don't do it because. Writing is not easy because it is work. You have to sit down, and you mm-hmm. half the time you hate yourself and you hate what you're doing. I mean, I don't know. I struggle. You just got to drive past that. And if you're driven, and if you're compelled to do it, and if you are honest with yourself, and you write, you write honestly. You don't just say good enough, or you don't, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't, because we've all got a story, and we've all got a unique, vo- unique voice. You find it, and you follow it, and you tap into that vein of gold, and um. And, and you might need help, you might need, you might need a professional to help you like a, a writing group or a course or something, or an editor or I think be aware of people who sell their services as editors because they're not always um, I don't think they're always um, the, What can I say qualified to do that sometimes people sell themselves and I think they probably crush a lot of people, um, but it's very easy to get crushed. But don't let yourself get crushed if you know that's what you should be doing and what you want to do. And there's something beautiful. Look, it's beautiful to create things. It's it's magic, it's magic. And you just keep going, you keep doing it. It's, any sense. it's
0: quite easy to be crushed in the art world. Um, I'm, I'm gonna end off on a quote from you, which I think is important. It's quite a long one. So I hope I don't stumble here. Ah. The creative process is not a glamorous one, it's an activity that requires solitude and discipline. The only way I can write or draw is to be alone, but while the journey is private, my overriding motivation is a public one. I create for others. I do it with the intention of bringing some form of happiness into people's lives. My intention is to uplift, stimulate, provoke, inspire, to make others think and hopefully laugh. Oh, I
1: forgot what I've written that. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic way to, to end. Now, if anyone wants to buy your books or yeah. follow your blog, which by the way has the fabulous title from the tiny life of DJ Connell, where not a lot happens, <laughs> uh, they can go to your website, www.djconnell.com or follow you on Twitter at mm-hmm dj connell author and also on facebook at julian corkle have i got all that correct
1: you have wonderful it's very good and um I, my blog i need to update but i've got a website and yeah there's so many things you these days a writer has to have has to be has to do all the social networking and things and so it's um, hard work isn't it oh well i don't know if it's hard work but you just sort of you've got to pay attention. And I like to drift and dream and live in vague land for half my life, you
0: know, that's what I do. Well, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing from you, meeting you, and I hope that we can have a drink in Sydney sometime. Um, We're actually out of time. DJ Connell, it has been a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for bringing some sunshine into my life.
1: Thank you so much, Pete, and my love to you.
0: Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean. Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.